Hello, I'm Haig. Welcome to Between the Lines. Today I'm joined by David Oldroy Bolt, a political consultant and media specialist, and we're going to discuss all things Brexit. Listen up and enjoy. Welcome to Between the Lines. Uh, this episode uh, is a kind of Brexit special because I have with me as my very special guest today, David Oldroy Bolt, who is a political and media consultant. Hello, David. Hi, Haig. Thank you. David and I are, are very good friends from a couple of places that we frequent in London, and uh, we often have had very deep conversations over the last few years following what's been going on in Brexit. But before we jump into that, um, I want to just ask, how, how are you? And uh, do you have any positives out of lockdown that you've experienced that you can share with us? There's lots of negatives, but uh, try and cheer up our listeners with some positives here. Hey, thank you. Well, I think this is one of those situations where you fall back on what uh, you might call your hinterland. And for me, that's languages and music. So it's been a marvelous time for revivifying Latin, learning Italian, learning some pieces on the piano that I perhaps didn't learn as well as I should when I was a music student, um, and for catching up on all the books that I buy and put in a shelf and don't end up reading. So I think there are great benefits from a, an intellectual point of view, but I, I think it really will struggle to make up for the complete and utter destruction of social life uh, and interaction. We are such social beasts by evolution and inclination uh, and the way our society is structured that to have that removed for a, nearly a year now, I think for most people will have consequences for mental health, never mind financial well-being, that will stretch well into the future. These things are wonderful. The, the, the advent of such easy technology as Zoom and uh, other calling software has made it possible to maintain some semblance of social interaction but I think it's at best a simulacrum uh, and it will never, could never replace the warmth and joy of, as we have over the years, sitting in a room or in a garden together with a drink and a cigar and exchanging views and, and laughing together. So yes, there have been benefits and selfishly I can say that it hasn't really touched the sides in, in the way that I know it has for so many millions of people but uh, I'm afraid I can't quite let those benefits outweigh what's been taken away from us. Right. I know you've been writing for The Telegraph and The Spectator and, and a number of different places, uh, but, but uh, how do you think um, it's been for journalists generally right now, or even, even book authors? Do you think they have more of public's attention, given no, uh, that, that they've got more time at home? Well, I think you have to make it differentiation between journalists who are on staff uh, and for the most part have secure salaries. They've been working from home um, and writing as they usually would. In fact, a, a great many journalists have been in their offices until, until very, very recently. Um, uh, certainly on the broadsheets, they've tried to keep going what they could of the newsrooms because it's so important to have people working together on these things. So, so, so jumping right into, into Brexit now, um... I know it, it started out, well, it started out probably still is a bit a bit of a divisive topic, so I don't necessarily want to take any size and stay apolitical. But uh, in terms of the measurable benefits of leaving the European Union, now talking uh, from the UK side, uh, how long do you think it will be before we start to see some, some measurable benefits? You're seeing it now. We have 
the, depending on which day we are, the third or fourth best vaccination program in the world behind Israel, the United States and the UAE. This is a direct consequence of our having left the European Union and being able to sign a contract three months before the European Union did with AstraZeneca to get the Oxford vaccine, which meant that we were coming on uh, on stream online with the vaccine at the very big, well, at the end of last year, because we'd taken a punt on that. As we've seen in the papers over the past week or two, this is still not possible in the European Union. Uh, and you are seeing vaccination levels that are utterly derisory. You know, they are vaccinating in France per day what we are vaccinating in a minute. It's about 250 people. This is, I mean, in the, in the midst of what is uh, the, probably the greatest public health crisis of the past 50 years, the European Union has shown itself completely and utterly incapable of handling the logistics and negotiations to protect its people. So we are already seeing a benefit. And the very fact that we are coming out of this sooner because we have that benefit of early vaccination means that we'll see the economic benefit later on because we'll be able to open up shops, bars, restaurants, people will be able to go back to work, all sorts of commerce that currently is in stasis at best, if not in rapid decline, should God willing, be able to reopen in the early spring, meaning we get that leap. And if we're the only country in the world doing certain things because uh, European markets are closed down or unable to be as productive as they were before, we should, I think, see uh, an increase in volume of trade. Uh, and I'm thinking of the high tech market, things like um, nanotechnology, for instance. You know, we we right. are pretty much at the head of that, but there are German companies trying to do it. And at the moment, you know, their production is shot through the floor. So we're already seeing that benefit. Uh, and yes, there are problems at uh, borders with getting goods in and out, uh, but that's inevitable. When you change from one system of tariffs to another, from one Absolutely. system of customs to another, there are always going to be teething problems. Yeah, it's, it's a gigantic transformation. And even some of the best run companies, I mean, they change an ERP system. And it, again, it takes them a year to transition that. So it's yeah. very understandable. In terms of a lot of the details, I know, um, you know, I spend hours trying to get all the details of all the different uh, things around travel and trade deals. When, you know, when do you think the clarity of all that will settle so it's it, so, so the general kind of public or, or business people will understand what's happening? I think on travel, there's at the moment very little impetus to sort out the teething problems because travel is essentially impossible. Um, you know, yeah. The 27 remaining EU countries were not allowed into them, really. And you have to have exceptionally good reasons. Um, and so, yes, there will be, I think, probably for the majority of this year, there will be those teething problems and uncertainties. But once travel begins to resume its previous volume, those will be worked out through practice. And that's the only thing that gets rid of difficulties uh, is, is the practice of, uh, of repeated exposure to them. Um, but let's not be catastrophic about this. All that we will have to do is the same as you do when you go to the United States or much less than you do if you have to go to Russia or some of the uh, Arab countries, which is to say right. you get yourself a visa and you will still be allowed to stay in the European Union for 90 out of every 180 days. So if you've got a second home out there, as so many do, particularly in the Dordogne, Parigot and so on, you can still go and spend three, four months there, um, or three months uh, at a block, but out of the year six without having to do anything, without having to get a residency permit. In terms of uh, the winners and the losers, I guess, out of this, um, what are the industries 
that you think are positively impacted and then and then the ones who are negatively impacted i know we've heard a lot about the financial service center in london being negatively impacted but but just uh give us a few of your ideas around uh what industries may actually prosper well let's look at the past week nissan has come through on what it pretty much from the beginning of the uh, Brexit negotiation said, which is it's going to expand its plant up in Sunderland. So financial services has been talked about as being a great loser in this, but I haven't really seen a huge amount of evidence that that's the case. Um, I don't see investment banks flooding out of London into Frankfurt or Paris. Um, I think the reasons for that are simple. On the one hand, Frankfurt is not, from uh, a daily living point of view, anywhere nearly so attractive as London is. And Paris is not, from a regulatory point of view, anywhere nearly so easy to operate out of as London is. London is still the centre of global commerce because of a mixture of our history in it and the fact that our time zone makes it easy, on the one hand, to begin uh, with the Asian markets and, on the other hand, to finish with the American markets and to straddle everything in between. I don't see that any other city in Western Europe has the same combination of advantages that we do on that front. In terms of other industries where I think Brexit is going to increase an already good outlook, I mentioned before nanotechnology, I think you have to look also at biomedical sciences. You've got the enormous tech hub outside Cambridge. Oxford is now, of course, trying to catch up. You've got that great rivalry between the two that means that whenever one does something well, the other wants to do well, which only ever drives productivity and success. Yeah, it's a bit like the Oxford and Cambridge boat race where where you've got them both kind of challenging, but it's the vaccine race now between Oxford and Cambridge. But not just vaccines, you have to look at what's already been going on, particularly around Cambridge, because that has been over the past five years uh, invested in heavily as a biotech hub for the whole of the UK. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're making great strides. And again, it's only really Israel and parts of the US that come close to matching what's going on there. So there are huge benefits to be gained from this. Um, and I, I really think that the ingenuity of entrepreneurs is such that and they would not be entrepreneurs if they did not have this ingenuity, such that they will be able to get around whatever yeah. temporary customs problems there are, whatever teething problems with imports, exports, and they'll find a way of making this work to their advantage. And frankly, if they don't, they're probably in the wrong business. No, exactly. Um, so, so that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of positive there. That, that leads to my next question: Do you think that the journal, you know, the journalism or the journalists paint a very negative picture of what's going on because they seem to splash? That everyone's moving out of London and all that. Um, do, do you think that uh, that the news needs to be reported a bit more positively? I don't think it needs to be, and I think it depends which organs of the press you read or listen to or watch. Um, right. There are those who have an interest in promoting the positives of this, and there are those who have an interest in denigrating it or pointing out the the the, the negatives, which do of course exist. It would be foolish yeah. to say that they don't. Um, my view and that of a great many people is that the positives do and will outweigh the negatives, but it is useful to know what those negatives are because otherwise you can't get through them and round, or around them. Um, I don't think it's necessarily good practice in journalism to say we must be positive. Um, yeah. Often the spur to better practice is to read something and think, actually, that's completely unacceptable. Uh, and so let's, let's improve it. Let's do it better. Let's come up with the product or a way or, or a means of doing this that removes that negative. That's how you get uh, innovation uh, and entrepreneurship. So I wouldn't necessarily say that we should tell journalists that they ought to report the story better. On the other hand, yes, you have to be aware of the fact that there are people who want to sell papers or garner viewers, either by, as I say, emphasizing the positives or 
uh, emphasizing the negatives and to try and be aware that this is, you know, it's a commercial sector like any other and it thrives on engagement and readership and listeners and viewers. Right. So the way to garner that is to go to the extremes or to push it farther than the evidence really suggests it could be taken in order to draw those people in. Um, we have a new administration in the USA again, tiptoeing around without you know having any specific views in terms of either side. H- how should you know business people in in the UK and Europe, or even from the US coming coming this way? be seeing, um, I guess, some of the advantages, again, being positive, let's start with the advantages of of the new administration. Well, the advantage is uh, that there is now a new administration, and that means that there is security in knowing at least what, for the next four years, the legislative programme is likely to be, and what the tenor and tone of politics in the United States is likely to be. Uh, I think one of the great problems has been that for the past, let's say, two months since the election, there's been great uncertainty in uh, the, in the states and around the world because it was a contested election. Um, I think the threat of Trump and his supporters is likely to decline as they settle themselves into the new administration. Right. Um, there will, of course, be the hardcore who never want to do that. But that is, I think, a feature of American politics. Um, it's a feature enough of English politics, British politics, but um, I think even more so in America. Um, And I don't necessarily see any evidence yet that uh, Mr. Biden and and Ms. Harris want uh, to bring down the republic or turn it into some kind of socialist utopia. I think there are certain policies of theirs which are slightly worrying from an economic point of view, um, but we have to let them play it out. Uh, And I think American businessmen coming here will find that it is the same country it was before last November. Uh, and they will have just the same welcome with open arms because we're, you know, it's a partnership of trade and, and it has, of course, a cultural hinterland to it. But fundamentally, our special relationship, what there is of it, is built on one of trade and, and mutual advantage. And I don't see that that's going to go away just because there's a more left wing government in the United States now than there is a right wing government in, in the United Kingdom. Interesting. Thank you. Um, I wanted to also ask you about uh, US businesses coming to the UK post-Brexit, just coming back to the Brexit connection there, do you think it's going to be more attractive for them to to come to, the say, the UK first? Or do you think there's any new attraction about the UK being kind of more independent from the European Union? Well, I think uh, in the sectors I've already mentioned, that will be an attraction because we have such uh, success already and already very good infrastructure. Uh, I think the attractiveness of the United Kingdom uh, uh, to the rest of the world, let's not necessarily the United States, very much depends on our tax regime. So until after the budget on March the 3rd, it's going to be difficult to forecast whether or not businesses are drawn here after uh, the quarantine uh, ends and after Fortress Britain is is a necessity. Uh, I should hope, very much indeed hope, that the Chancellor is not thinking of putting up corporation tax, as has been reported in some papers. I should hope that he's in fact thinking of lowering it. The, the more we can do to make ourselves a tax competitive regime, a tax com- uh, compared with the rest of the world and uh, certainly compared with Western Europe and the United uh, European Union, uh, the more likely it is that we will get American businessmen coming here and also businessmen from the rest of the Anglosphere. You know, we, we mustn't just think of this in terms of here is the European Union, here is America, and those are the only markets. We've got to think in terms of the Anglosphere of uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and I would include in this India. India, a country of a billion people, which is, I think, very shortly to become the most populous country 
on the planet is primarily a, a country in which English is the language of business. We have so many cultural ties there. It would be ludicrous to ignore that. Right. Um, we must do what we can to entice people to not maybe not set up businesses here, or if they want to do, brilliant, uh, but certainly to have bases here and to have people employed here. Now, that's, an, I think, an important factor, not just to have people working in this country, but actually to have them employed right. as British employees on pay-as-you-earn so that they're part of the economy, so that you know there are real and lasting jobs here. Because this is, of course, a worry that, that outsourcing will mean that jobs are either short-term or contracted uh, or on much lower rates than they were before. So we have to bear that in mind, too. Thank you. Um- as I start wrapping up, I want to to hit a couple of lighter subjects. I know uh, six months ago we were talking, I think you were in the middle of uh, some sponsored walk and you were raising money for, I think, for, for cancer research and, and something else. And, and the Stroke Association. Absolutely. Yes. And then um, I think you had to had to stop that and postpone it because I think your partner or your the friend you were walking with, I think his, his foot imploded or exploded or felt a bit, something like that. Yeah. Yes, alas. Yes, this was uh, unfortunately a, fr- a very dear friend last year at the age of 39 had a catastrophic stroke, which has rendered him paralyzed down his left side. And I thought, um, while there isn't a great deal going on in the country, this was back in uh, August, September, um, we should try and raise some money for him. So off we set to walk from London to Yorkshire. Uh, my friend who was walking with me was doing this for cancer research. But yes, unfortunately, his feet gave out. And on the fourth day, having walked 103 miles in four days. He uh, had to go to hospital in order to save his feet from gangrene. So on hold at the moment, but so far we've raised over 5,000 pounds for the two charities. So David, tell me how far is uh, London to Yorkshire and how many days were you planning to do it in? Well, our route was 260 miles of which we've done 103. Um, It should take two weeks. So we are four days down, 10 to go. Uh, We built in a rest day there. And we aim to pick it up again in the spring when the weather is better because we're camping on the way in order to make sure that all of the money we raise goes to the charities, Cancer Research and to the Stroke Association, rather than being used to fund bed and breakfasts and hotels on the way. Yeah, well, that's a brilliant cause. So, uh, so, so good luck with that walk, and I'm sure I'll see you before then. So finally, I just wanted to ask you about wines. I know whenever we, I see you, you're always drinking an amazing wine. So uh, I thought let's just... Uh, have, so what's, I guess, one of your favourites and um, what's one of your recommendations? Well, over the lockdown, I've been drinking my way happily through a case of uh, Gruyola Rose 1989, which is drinking beautifully. Um, I did ha- try some new world wine, a California cab stove called The Crusher, uh, which had been recommended by some friends. And I've got to say that was very good indeed at barbecue season. Uh, but for me, it, all, it always comes back to the left bank and it really always comes down to Saint-Julien and Poyac. Um, I was very pleased indeed recently to have a bottle of the second wine of Chateau Latour sent to me, uh, which was quite spectacular. So, so Brexit comes and uh, an English sparkling wine versus a cheaper French champagne. Which do you go for? Well, I'm afraid I'm old fashioned. I'll always go for something from Epernay rather than English. I find English fizz to be too acidic for my palate. Um, there are some of them that I've had that I thought were okay. Uh, there's a Gisborne, uh pink champagne or fizz that's rather good. Uh, but I, yeah, I'm afraid I'm old fashioned and I like the real stuff. Uh, and I do generally think that you can find so many small unknown producers uh, from the champagne region selling at yeah. 40, 20 pounds a bottle uh, that are more than a match for better known names. 
such as both Clicquot, for instance, which I find vastly underwhelming nowadays. Well, thank you, David. And then thank you also for joining me in the office for this, uh, this interview. Uh, I know you're in a separate room. I have planted in the separate room a bottle of Armenian brandy or cognac. I'm not sure which one it is, but uh, there it is. So I think as a final uh, salute, we can maybe have a quick toast to 2021 together. And um, I'd love to uh, hear what you think of the taste, if you haven't tasted this before. Mm. This is actually a 10-year-old, so uh, it's not one of the older ones, but but it's still a beautiful brandy. That's wonderful. It's got something Evarmaniac about it, doesn't it? Yes. Fruity on the nose and very good on the palate. Good. Excellent. Thanks again for, for coming on to Between the Lines and really reading what is going on Between the Lines in terms of Brexit, the new administration in the US, and a few other little topics we covered during our interview. So thank you for that. Thank you for the audience for listening. And uh, you can send any questions to me to uh, to either answer or pass on to David on our LinkedIn account. Um, so, so David, thank you. Thanks very much, everybody. Thank you, David. That was an amazing interview. Really loved it. Please like and subscribe and I'll see you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>